As we begin here this morning, I want to ask if there is somebody out there this morning who's an eschatology expert. Eschatology expert out there. Do I see any out there uh, this morning? Like you, you think you know exactly when the end of the world is going to take place. You've deciphered all of the secret biblical codes. You know the numbers, right? You connect the dots. You got the whole book of Revelation figured out. You know exactly what's going to happen during that great tribulation, all the details of the millennial kingdom, and you may even be so bold as to make a prediction of when uh, the Lord is coming back. So do we have an expert out there this morning? Anybody? Nobody brave enough, right? Well, there's many, many, many people throughout history, church history, that when it comes to the end, when it comes to end times, uh, they claim to have it all figured out. Uh, they claim that they have run the numbers, right? Uh, they claim to know precisely when the Lord is coming back, when all of these things are going to take place. And over and over again, people have made predictions of how it's all going to happen, right? Only to find that that date that they predicted has come and gone. Jesus has not yet returned. The world is still intact. Friends, it's natural for us to be curious, right? It's, it's so natural for us to be curious about the end, what's going to happen. Uh, Jesus' disciples were curious as well. So as we turn to Mark chapter 13, we see that they were curious. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13, we see Jesus here. It's only two days away from being crucified on the cross. He just finished his final public discourse in the temple in chapter 12. Remember, he was refuting all the challenges from the temple council. You know, he was warning about the scribes last week, warning about false teachers, warning about hypocrisy. And then as he leaves the temple for the last time, as he goes out to the the Mount of Olives, in their own curiosity, the disciples are going to ask him about the end times. And in love and in warning, Jesus answers in his way, and he gives them some answers. Jesus reveals some signs for them, some indicators that they need to be watching for in the last days. Now, as the gospel of Mark before you is, it's primarily just biblical narrative, right? The life, it's usually just about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, proving he's the Son of God and all his power and his authority. Chapter 13 here stands out uniquely as apocalyptic in nature, meaning it's revealing things to come. It, It reveals signs of the end of the age, future events to be watching out for, tribulation and suffering to be expecting, and then also and ultimately the return of the Son of Man, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Mark chapter 13 is quite unique in this book. It's all about the future end, the future end of the world and the beginning of eternity. And as we study this together, what we're going to do with chapter 13, we're going to split this across two sermons. Uh, Today we're going to focus on verses 1 to 13. And the title of this sermon is going to be, How Do We Know That the End Is Near?, And then next time we're together, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 31, and that's going to be, how do we know that the end is here? So how do we know the end is near? How do we know that the end is here? And through our text here this morning, verses 1 to 13, we're going to see that Jesus 
uh, reveals uh, four signs for us, four major indicators to be watching for that is revealing that the end is near. So Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help here this morning. Lord, as your all-sufficient, inerrant, infallible, perfect word is open before us. We stand in awe of these things that you are revealing, uh, these, these mysteries of the future. And Lord, we don't claim to have it all figured out, but we know that you do. So Lord, in this text today, would you teach us exactly what we need to know? Would you preach it individually to each one of our hearts here this morning so that we know how to respond in faith, respond in the Spirit's strength, according to your word, by your grace. Lord, reveal yourself to us even further in in your word this morning. We ask all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. All right. So when will these things be? What will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is the question of the disciples. Brothers and sisters, how how do we know that the end is near? Well, according to Jesus here, in these first two verses of of chapter 13, we can know that the end is near when the old has been fulfilled. We can know that the end is near when the old has been fulfilled. Verses 1 to 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, he's looking at the temple, look, what wonderful stones. What, what wonderful buildings. 
And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This would have shocked his disciples. How do we know the end is near? When the old has been fulfilled. So as Jesus and his disciples here are leaving the temple, they're leaving the temple, Jesus is leaving after an exhausting, frustrating theological battle with the chief priests, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and then the scribes. It's all of chapter 12. And then he leaves the gates of the temple for the last time. And this unnamed disciple, it doesn't give him a name, so it doesn't really matter, One of his disciples looks back at the temple and he's marveling, marveling at the grandeur, marveling at the beauty of this temple. And he wants Jesus to look at it and to behold its beauty as well. Look, teacher, look, rabbi, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Friends, if you and I could get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years and then travel thousands of kilometers across the ocean to Jerusalem and stand at the foot of, of the temple at that time, we would be impressed as well. We would be in awe with this beautiful building, with this temple. And we would have said with that disciple, what wonderful stones, what an amazing building. I've got an artist rendition of the temple at that time. And if you know your biblical history, you know that in the time of Christ, the temple was grand. It was great. It was a beautiful building. At this time, Herod was king of the Jews. And if you know anything about Herod, he was a master builder. He was building projects all over Israel. If you look back into ancient history, you're going to see that During his life, he was always building something, and what he built was always massive. It was amazing, and the temple was one such project. In fact, the temple was the project of projects. It was the the holy sanctuary of God. Now, before Herod built the temple, we have to remember back to the original temple, right, built by King Solomon. And yet it was destroyed in 587 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But then as the Jews returned from exile, Zerubbabel led the people to rebuild the temple in 516 B.C. But but even compared to Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple just paled. It was just, just a sad facsimile of the first temple. And then we see Herod coming onto the scene, and he decides to completely overhaul and expand the temple to to greater glory than, than even Solomon's temple was at first. And so he enlarged the temple. If you're looking there, he enlarged the footprint of the temple uh, to 325 meters by 500 meters long. Basically, all that space you see there is about 35 acres of space, or as our American friends like to measure it, 12 American football fields. He built a massive foundation. You can see that all on the outside there. Massive foundation. Uh, The back corner over the valley stood 15 meters above the ground. 
the blocks of stone that he used were absolutely massive. It was unheard of. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus records that, that some of the stones he used were 40 cubits in length. That would be 60 feet long, 17 feet thick, and each one weighing well over a million pounds each. As I'm reading that, I'm just thinking, how in the world, with their technology, did they move these stones back then? How would they even consider stacking those things on top? It's, it's mind-blowing. And that's just the foundation. You look at the center there, the, the temple sanctuary itself was, was in the center. It towered 50 meters high above everything else. Uh, and even the design, if you were to look from the side, actually looks like a lion perching. It was decorated and, and plated with lavish gold and silver and with crimson and purple jewels encrusted into its surface. In the noonday sun, it was so bright, Josephus said it was a striking spectacle. It was the crown jewel of the city. And so this disciple, walking with Jesus, leaving the temple, looks back in awe of what Herod built. In awe of what man can do. And he wants Jesus to look at it and marvel at it as well. But, but Jesus is not seeing what he's seeing. Remember, Jesus is looking at the temple, and he sees a den of thieves. He sees a hypocritical system. He sees false religion preying on people. People who aren't even worshiping the true and living God that the temple is supposed to lead them to. And so he says to his disciples, and he says prophetically, he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone. Think about how massive those stones are. There will not be here one stone that will not be thrown down. So how do we know the end is near? When the old has been fulfilled. And what I mean by that is, is when it's been fulfilled in the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we look at this Glorious, look at this amazing, wonderful-looking temple. That temple was to be no more. If you remember the moment Jesus died on the cross, Mark 15, 37 to 38 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Friends, the old covenant, the old way has been fulfilled perfectly and finally in the final lamb sacrifice, Jesus Christ. When he died, the curtain that was to separate man from the holy of holies was torn in two, symbolizing that in the blood of Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, in his death, in the gospel, Man no longer needs the temple system. Man no longer needs an earthly priest. Man no longer needs earthly sacrifices because Jesus Christ is the final, pure, perfect sacrifice. Once for all, God's wrath was perfectly, fully satisfied in Jesus. And now, if you repent and believe in that good news, 
access to his presence is now open to you. There's no more curtain, no more separation. In Jesus Christ, you have full access to the presence of God. There's no need of the temple anymore. The old is gone. The new has come. You think back to when Jesus was flipping over the tables of the money changers in the temple. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What he's talking about there is not building another building. He's talking about building the church. Destroy this temple, and in three days, as he rises from the grave... He is going to build his church. The body of believers is the building that Jesus is building. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How do we know the end is near? When the old has been fulfilled. And it has been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. His death and his resurrection mark the conclusion of the old covenant. And it inaugurates the new covenant in his blood which means the temple, that glorious building that we saw, is obsolete. It's no more. We don't need it. It's old news. Now, on top of this, that glorious, wonderful-looking temple, it still stood. It still stood after Jesus rose from the grave. It even stood after he ascended to heaven, and it was still being used, but it was being used in vain until it was completely and utterly destroyed about 37 years after his death. After four years of Jewish revolt and war with the Romans, in August of 70 AD, as difficult as this would be to imagine for this disciple, that massive Jewish temple was ultimately seized by the Romans, and it was set ablaze. And so when Jesus said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, what happened was, is because of that fire, all of the gold and the silver and the jewels that were encrusted on that building would have melted down in between the stones and down to the foundation. And the Romans, as they were plundering, would have knocked over every one of those stones to get as all the gold. If you go there today, you see that, yes, there is a foundation left, but the temple is gone. It is gone, and actually a mosque stands in its place. Also, if you go to Rome today, you can see something very interesting. If you go see the Ark of Titus in Rome, uh, this was a, an ark built in memoriam of the, the siege of Jerusalem as the Romans were coming back to Rome. Uh, when you look at the Ark of Titus, sculpted on the inside in relief, uh, you can see the Romans plundering and carrying away the loot from the temple. As you're looking at that picture, you can see a menorah. You can see a table of the bread of presence as they are plundering the temple and destroying it. It's gone. Living in the new covenant, which we are, is living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Even though it's 2,000 years later, friends, the end is near. 
And even 2,000 years later, the end is that much nearer. We're living in the, the last days. So if somebody asks you for a sign about when the end is near, the biggest sign is this. The old is gone. The new has come. The old covenant is done away with. The new covenant has come in Jesus Christ. It's been fulfilled perfectly and completely in Jesus. Now as Jesus and his disciples, they carry on. They leave the temple. They go across the Kidron Valley and they go back up to the Mount of Olives. Verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, you know, as you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, you can look right across the valley and you're basically eye level with the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew, uh, often you see Jesus with this inner circle of discipleship going on. Uh, they ask him privately, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they want to know when this destruction of the temple is coming. You know, what's the signs, Lord, that this is going to happen? What are some things that we need to be watching for? In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it gives us a little more insight to their question. Matthew 24, 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So not only asking, like, when will this temple be destroyed, but also, when are you coming back? When is the end going to be here? And these things they're referring to is ultimately Jesus Christ's return in the last days, the end of the age, the end of this world, right? Jesus has been telling them quite a few times now, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again from the, the grave. And so they're, they're be believing this, and they know that he's going to be gone. But when are you coming back, Lord? When are you coming back? Jesus doesn't give them a time, but he gives them something to be watching for. It's something for us to be watching for as well. He says in verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Friends, a second sign that the end is near is when the false lead many astray. When the false lead many astray astray. As Jesus just finished warning his disciples, warning people in the temple, warning about the scribes, right? Beware the scribes. Beware false teachers. Beware false shepherds. We're seeing here that false shepherds lead masses of people away from God. They're going to look the part they're going to claim to be from God. Some are even going to claim to be Jesus, be the Messiah. In fact, he says, they will claim to be him. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Even the phrase there, I am, referring to divinity. They're going to claim to be God. And they will lead many astray. Friends, we learned last week that we need to be watching out for false shepherds. And then Jesus warns here right 
hear that many are coming, not just one or two, many false shepherds, many false teachers are going to come and they're going to lead many people astray. As you study the history of the church, Jesus' words prove true. Many false teachers have come and gone over the past 2,000 years, leading many people astray. It's happening today. Even in the first century, even in the first and second century, false teachers, false leaders were coming out of the woodwork and they were coming onto the scene. As early as A.D. 132, a man by the name of Simon bar Kosiba, he claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be sent from God, and he led many people astray from the true gospel. Also, as you study church history, we know that the church, by and large, was centered in Rome. But the true gospel began to be mixed in with Roman paganism, mysticism. In the 4th century, the the papacy started. Last week we were talking about that a little bit. Uh, The Roman church started calling their leaders popes. At one time they had three popes fighting for power. They called themselves chief priests. They eventually started teaching that the pope was infallible just like God which ultimately has led, up to this day, millions and millions and millions of people away from the true gospel, away from the true and living God. And in the last 100 years, many more have arrived on the scene, using the name of Christ to to pad their wallets, to take advantage of people. Again, praying on the poor, we see that everywhere. In our country... And in our city, there there is false teaching all around us. There is. It's everywhere. When I began to search for a place for our church to meet about three years ago, I began looking in so many different places around the south. Not that they were available, but we, we looked everywhere. And what I found was any available space, whether it's community center or anything, uh, it was used, usually already all booked for Sundays by user groups, Many of them booked by people under the Christian umbrella. But in fact, some were teaching false doctrine, false gospels, false leaders claiming to work for Christ, but who are actually leading people away from him. One of the places I I looked into was was a hotel, Uh, but there was a, a church meeting there. It was being led by a guy who calls himself Reverend Elvis. He dresses like Elvis. He sings like Elvis. He gives messages about inspiration and prosperity. Friends, this is not the gospel. He's leading people away from God. And we see that all over our city, all over our country, all over the world. Now, I know that's, that's kind of a silly example, and we could go on and on and on about false teachers, false movements, leading many astray. It's upsetting. It's It's infuriating to see the word of God being used by that. But the truth of the matter is here, this is no surprise to Jesus. No surprise at all. This is exactly what he's telling his disciples. The more that we see false teachers, the the nearer these things are, right? These things they're asking for, these, these days, these ends of the age days. 
in the end of the age, we are going to see many more false teachers come. There's going to be many who are going to claim to be Christ, saying, I am he. I'm the Messiah. Scripture calls these antichrists. They claim to be Christ, yet they are against Christ, antichrist, against Christ. In fact, the Apostle John, who, just think about it, Jesus is actually talking to him right now in this text. And then you fast forward to John's own writings. John says this in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour. It, it, it is the end. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, right? John is believing and hearkening back to what Jesus was teaching him. Now, we're going to talk much more about the Antichrist. Uh, the next time we're together, in the other half of chapter 13, talking about the abomination of desolation. But for the purpose of this text right here and this warning of Jesus, we see that he's revealing that a sign of the times will be that false leaders will lead many astray. With that sign, though, I want you to notice here that he's shepherding his disciples as well. He's warning them, but he's also shepherding. He says, watch out. Watch out. Watch out that no one leads you astray. As much as he reveals a sign, even more so, he's concerned with the preparedness of their hearts. He's revealing these indicators, things to be watching out for, but it's not something to be consumed with. It's something to be watching for, but don't be consumed. Be consumed with where you are. Watch out. Watch out that you're not led astray by them. He instructs their hearts to be ready. To be ready, to not fall for their deception, but to recognize the false when it is false. So that when he comes, we are faithful. We are walking in him. Friends, there is false teaching everywhere. It's everywhere. Which means we have to be careful, right? A lot of times false teaching looks really good on the outside. It does. But the reality is it's the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. A lot of stuff they're saying sounds like it's from here, but at the core of what they're teaching is a slippery slope. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful they don't lead us astray, leading your family astray, leading your friends astray. Last week's sermon, we, we, we looked at how do we identify false teachers, right? Remember, we we saw that they parade their position, they pursue prestige, they perform for praise, they prey on people. But even more than all that, when you're trying to identify a false teacher, you need to look at what they're teaching. That's going to reveal to you their authenticity or their falseness. Friends, God gave us, he gave us this unchangeable, all-sufficient, inerrant, infallible word. It doesn't change. He gave us, this, gave us this Bible written by his Holy Spirit powerfully through men and he has preserved it over the ages as a divine standard, as a divine 
ruler. The Bible is called the canon, right? It's a rule. We measure everything against God's word. We measure faithfulness. We measure falseness against this word. So if we want to watch out, we need to be comparing everything to this perfect truth. Measure what they're teaching. Acts 17 speaks about the Bereans. We need to be like the Bereans. The Bereans were examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. See if these things they're hearing, these teachings they're hearing are true. Check everything against God's word. If it comes up fishy, if it comes up smelly, if it, if it sounds contrary to this word, we need to run from it. We need to run and hold fast to God's word, what God's word has revealed. And so when Jesus says, watch out, he's saying to you, watch out. Be careful. Make sure that you're in a church that teaches God's word and the truth of God's word. So we know the end is near when the false lead many astray. We also know the end is near when the world falls apart around us. We know the end is near when the world is falling apart around us. Verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Friends, we know the end is near when the world is falling apart around us. Whenever there's a war, whenever there's a threat of war, we often wonder to ourselves, is this the one? Is this the big one? Is this the war to end all wars? Has it finally come? I'm sure even this past week with what's going on in Iran and, and Iraq, some of us are a little wondering, frightened. You know, we also do the same thing when we experience natural phenomena, natural disasters, right? Is, is this the one? Is this the big one? Is it finally going to end? Even as we watch the news, we hear over and over that weather patterns are changing. The earth is warming. We're experiencing droughts, fires. Australia is on fire. Failures of crops, shortages of food supply. And we think to ourselves, what's, what's going on here, Lord? Is this the end? How long can this go on? Is the end coming soon? As these disciples ask the same questions, they, they say, when will these things be and what will be the signs? Remember, Jesus doesn't give them a date. He doesn't give them a time. But what he does tell them are indicators to be watching for. One of those indicators is conflict. Conflict between people. He says, wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, right? And we see that throughout all of history. We also see conflict within his creation itself. There will be earthquakes and famines. 
In fact, Luke's gospel adds, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So, so yes, there's no time frame, there's no date, but there's these signs, signs to be watching for, signs that the end is near. Now, as we think about all these wars and we think about natural disasters, natural phenomena, it's pretty easy to get afraid. It's pretty easy to run to fear. But listen to how Jesus shepherds his disciples again as he reveals this. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Don't be troubled. Don't be unpleasantly surprised. Why? He says, this must take place. This is a part of the plan. But the end is not yet. So as scary as the details may be, he wants us to not be surprised at their arrival, to be expecting all of this. You know, his disciples in their lives, they're going to experience wars, right? Right, right even in Jerusalem. They're going to experience earthquakes. There's, there's massive earthquakes in Asia Minor at that time. They're going to go through natural disasters. There's going to be famines, right? They're going to all experience this in their lifetime. He wants them not to be surprised when these things happen. Expect them. It's a part of the plan. It must take place. Don't be surprised. It's a reminder that he is coming. He says, but the end is not yet. Again, we're focusing today, the text is focusing on how do we know the end is near, not the end is here. He says, the end is not yet. He says, these are but the beginning. They're but the beginning of the birth pains. So just think about that for a moment, especially you ladies out there. When a woman is, is about to give birth, right, you have contractions. Contractions. Preparedness for the time when the child is going to be born. You have these painful contractions and they start smaller but then they increase with frequency and they increase with intensity as you move towards the end of the pregnancy and the arrival of your baby now ladies would you agree that contractions are painful they are as you move closer to the time of birth, you see they just increase with frequency. They increase with pain. Jesus is, Jesus is saying here that these signs and events, these wars, these natural events, they are signs of the end of the age, and they are like a woman giving birth. As we give, get closer to that day, these pains are going to increase. They're going to increase in frequency. They're going to increase with intensity until that great and final day. When it all comes to an end, when the Son of Man comes, and he's going to make all things right. So the more wars that we see, the more unrest that we see, the more natural disasters we see that we experience, the closer we are to seeing Jesus Christ. He says, don't be alarmed. Be ready. Be prepared. Be faithful. These things must happen, he says. So friends, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. 
The gospel reality here is that the more we see the world falling apart, the nearer Christ is to coming back. You know, right now, our society seems to be in a state of panic over certain things happening in our world, for example, especially the environment. From the fires in Australia to earthquakes in Puerto Rico, hurricanes and shrinking ice caps. Many are proclaiming that there is an increasing intensity to all of these things. Well, as a Christian, we're like, okay, well, that's a sign. The birth pains are beginning. Jesus is coming back. But as the world looks at it, they, they don't have that worldview. They look at it and, 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 and in panic, they start making conclusions that it's due to mankind, it very well could be. And if we don't take drastic measures now, we're going to destroy our planet within a couple decades, right? It's a climate emergency. Young people are getting involved, passionately protesting, frantically raising their voices to the world leaders. And I get it. I get their panic. I get their panic because if this is all you believe in, this is all you have. You should be panicking. If the world is all there is, then we should be freaking out. The reason the world is, is losing it over the climate crisis is because their hope is not in a returning Lord. Their hope is in a decaying planet. But Jesus says, when you see these things, don't be alarmed. Expect it. Don't be surprised. This is all according to the plan. The more frequent disasters and the more violent our cosmos becomes, the more that you can be sure that Jesus is coming back. And it's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. Friends, as Christians, we know the grander story. Again, we have the book, right? God has revealed, right, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And guess what? God wins. And we win in him. Even though we don't know the date or time, we have the book that tells us everything we need to know. We have the book that tells us about how this place was created and how it's going to be recreated, Right? We, we get to know the creator. We get to know Jesus Christ. We get to know salvation that is only found in his name. And it's only found in this book. You can't know Jesus apart from this book. So the more that we see the world falling apart, the nearer Christ is to coming back. So according, according to Jesus here, the end is near when the old has been fulfilled, fulfilled in him. The end is near when the false are leading many astray. The end is near when the world is falling apart around us. And then fourthly, we know that the end is near when the faithful endure persecution. Verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. As Jesus is only days from being crucified. He's, he's really 
only hours from being arrested. He is going to be beaten, right? And his apostles are going to experience the same things. As, we, as we're going to study the book of Mark right up to Easter, we're going to see Jesus getting arrested and getting delivered. And then if you go read the book of Acts, the apostles are going to be arrested. They're going to be delivered. As he is going to be beaten, his apostles, his disciples, many throughout church history are going to be beaten. As, he, as Jesus is going to stand before the leaders... His apostles, his disciples, his men and women throughout history bearing the gospel are going to stand before leaders and testify, bear witness about Jesus Christ. Every apostle of Jesus faced trials, faced afflictions, faced persecution. As, as, the, as the Jewish council in Romans would arrest and they would jail the apostles over and over again. They never, the apostles never missed an opportunity to preach the gospel. They always used every opportunity to preach the good news to anyone who was listening. They bore witness to governors, kings, judges, and rulers, to everyone. And they did this even to the point of death, which, when you look at the, the 12, I mean, not including Judas, but then you add Paul, when you're looking at the 12 apostles, 11 of them were killed for their faith. Killed for bearing witness. The phrase, bear witness, in the original Greek text is the word martyrion. It's where we get the word martyr. To bear witness is to be killed for your faith. As these disciples were, were going to be persecuted and killed for their faith, again, it was a sign that the end is near. And as many followed in their footsteps, even up to this very day, many are being martyred for the faith of Jesus Christ. If you go to places around the world and China and Nigeria and other places, people are dying just because they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. It seems so distant, distant from us here. Jesus says in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So as you're seeing here, the gospel and persecution go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, I love this, what he says here. He says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to, what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So even if you look back to the, the book of Acts, we see Stephen. Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, the very first disciple that is killed. He stands trial before the Jewish council, but right before they stone him to death, he stands and he boldly proclaims the truth of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ before leaders. 
but before those who are persecuting him. The Holy Spirit gave him strength. The Holy Spirit gave him the words to say. The Holy Spirit gave him the power to stand in boldness and to proclaim the good news before he is destroyed by stones. In a similar situation, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.17, writing to young Timothy, he said, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles might hear it. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious when it comes to bearing witness about the gospel to others. Make sure that you know the word of God. Again, back to the word of God. Make sure you know this. Study it. Know Jesus. And in that testifying moment, the Spirit will lead you to proclaim the good news. Put the word of God into you. The Holy Spirit will use that for proclamation. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, to be a Christian is to be hated. How much we want to be loved by the world, right? To be a Christian is to be hated. Jesus said, they will hate you because they hated me first. We also see persecution taking place within families. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Families, we see this breakdown here of of brothers delivering over brothers to death, fathers, their children. Children will rise up against parents, having them put to death. The gospel and persecution go hand in hand. And the more that persecution comes, again, the nearer that Christ is. So we know that the end is near when the faithful endure persecution. So to endure persecution is to press on amidst the the persecution. To press on, as Paul says, to the upward call of Jesus Christ. So as you and I are faithful in the strength of the Spirit to believe that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and as we are faithful to stand and proclaim the good news, again, trusting in the Spirit of God amidst the face of persecution, this faithfulness on display is evidence that our salvation is true. Not that we have anything to boast in in and of ourselves. But we boast in Jesus Christ. We boast in him that he truly saved us, that his spirit is alive within us. And that he is bearing witness through our witness. So we ask ourselves, are we experiencing persecution right now? Am I experiencing persecution right now? Are you experiencing any persecution for the faith that you proclaim? If not, we need to ask ourselves why. Friends, we have been saved by the greatest good news. 
It's the greatest good news that we could ever hear. It's the good news that we couldn't save ourselves from our sin. It's the good news that God sent himself because we couldn't save ourselves. It's the good news that we preach here in this church. It's good news that we love to sing about. It's good news that we love to study together with the scriptures and pray with one another in our small groups. And yet, when we go out into the world, is it the first thing on our lips to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, to our friends? You know, if we're not experiencing any pushback for who we claim to be, are we really who we claim to be? Jesus says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. We believe that. Gospel here in Calgary, gospel to the nation, gospel around the world. We believe that. We believe it on paper. But are we believing that in our own personal lives? Friends, the gospel and persecution go hand in hand. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So perhaps we're not being persecuted because we really aren't believing the gospel. Friends, we need to believe the gospel. We need to believe the gospel, not just for ourselves, not just for our lives, not just for our salvation, but for others. The world desperately needs to hear the greatest news. And God has given you the greatest news so that you go proclaim it. It's for every one of us who name ourselves Christians. It's not just for the pastor. It's not just for those token missionaries. It is for each one of us. That's how Jesus builds his church. We don't want to be just consumers, right? Church is for me. It's for my spiritual growth. Yes. But if there's no evidence in our feet and our mouths are not opening, are we who we claim to be? Is the gospel truly the greatest news you have ever heard? Again, I've said this before. Listen to your conversations. Listen to your voice online. When you analyze what you share, what you joy in, what you celebrate, what percentage of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how are we going? How am I going to the nations every day, every week with the greatest news that could ever be heard? And what are we afraid of? Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When we preach the good news to all nations, against all opposition, against the world, against the flesh, against the devil... It proves who we say we are. Friends, hatred and persecution is yet another sign that Jesus is coming back. We know the end is near when the faithful endure persecution. So these signs that Jesus is giving, it's not just meant, it's not meant to reveal 
just something to be watching for. The purpose of these signs and Jesus' shepherding of their hearts to be watching out is really teaching us about being ready, being prepared, being faithful. The days are dark. It's urgent. We've been called to, to share the good news. It must be preached to all nations. So as we see the old being fulfilled, as we see the false leading many astray, as we see the world falling apart around us, and as we see the faithful being persecuted, ask yourself, am I running to fear? Am I running to save myself? Am I running to save the world? Or am I running to faith? Am I resting in the assurance of Jesus Christ's return? Am I excited for that day? And as I anticipate that day, is it giving my feet all the more urgency for the next day? Jesus is not here today. I get more opportunity to share the good news with somebody. And then as the next day comes, he's not here yet. I get to share some more. It's such a privilege. The point, friends, is not to be overly concerned with the time, not to be concerned with the hour, but as we look and we see all these signs, it is to be faithful right now. Let's be a faithful church, faithful in the moment, faithful in the urgency, living for Christ, growing for Christ, but also bearing witness about the gospel. Living every day for him and longing for that great and final day of his return when we are going to see Jesus face to face. Amen. So we know the end is near. When the old has been fulfilled, when the false lead many astray, when the world is falling apart, and when the faithful endure persecution, friends, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you examining my own heart and I'm sure the rest examining their hearts. Knowing then we talk, when we talk about evangelism, we talk about preaching the gospel, we often fall short. Lord, as a people, starting right here in the pulpit, Lord, may we embrace the greatest news ever given. And may we believe it by responding, motivated by grace and the strength of the Spirit, believing in the gospel, that we could be bold, that we can stand, that your Spirit is going to give us the words at the right time, and for us to understand that, that people come to faith by hearing, by hearing through the the words of Christ. How will they hear without a preacher? You've called us all to preach the good news, Lord. As we look at these signs, Lord, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in them and, and to be trying to discern this and that. Lord, all we, all we can acknowledge before you is that these things are increasing. And that means that you're coming soon. And we long for that. We can't wait for the day when we get to see you face to face. Thank you for saving us. But in these dark and final days, Lord, use us. May we not be consumed with the things of this world. May we be consumed with you. And by your spirit, 
Use us to build your kingdom. We love you in the name of Christ. Amen.